0: Alright, while you turn into to Exodus chapter 32, that's where we're going to be this morning. Last week we ventured into this passage and discovered there's, there's something that's common to every one of us. We are being described in this passage and this passage was written down to help us understand some elements of living life. And so at the foot of Mount Sinai, while Moses was up getting this incredible revelation from God about the tabernacle, God was going to become a roommate with the people of God and live among them through this vehicle of the tabernacle. While they were sitting at Mount Sinai, Moses was on the mountain, their hearts were prone to idolatry. They had access to God. They had been called to God. They had an opportunity with God. They had a covenant that had been explained to them. They had the promises of God made known to them. But in a very short period of time, they were mismanaging their idolatry. And I say it that way, mismanaging their idolatry, because I'm going to start at that point again for us. You and I have this responsibility to manage the idolatry that's in our hearts. Because we are worshiping creatures. We are creatures. And the creaturely instinct that's in us is to look to something. It's it's just in you. And you're never going to escape it. There's never going to be a day in your life where there's not this thing that goes off on the inside of you that says, Look to something. You need something. You're incomplete. You're lacking. You don't have everything you need. That's going to be in you until you stand face to face with God in glory. And we can look to God or we can look to something else. An older writer, A.W. Pink, said it this way. He says, man by nature is essentially a religious creature. He's made originally to pay homage to his creator. It is this religious nature of man's which, strange as it may seem, lies at the root of all idolatry. Instead of worshiping God, he now serves his own lusts. And honors idols which are patterned after his lusts. Man must have his God. Otherwise, he would not be man. And because the natural man, what he now is as a fallen creature, has lost his knowledge of the true God. He turns to the resources of his own mind to fill the void. That, unfortunately, is our description every day of our lives. And so there is this never-ending challenge to manage the idolatry that will go off in our hearts. And and you will have an opportunity to manage it this week. But what's interesting here, what we're going to learn something today is, because the Bible's drawing us into this story, right? There's all kinds of stories that are in history. All kinds of things the people of God did. That God doesn't even write down for us, right? You all get that, right? Everything that ever happened is not written in the Bible. Certain things are written in the Bible. So God draws our attention to this particular episode. And what we're going to stare at today is how does God respond to this idolatry in the heart of people? So we have idolatry last week. We're going to see God's response this week. And this is a very simple point, but not one to be overlooked. When you come to the Bible, what are, you, what are you looking for when you open this Bible up? Why do you read it? What do you hope to get as a takeaway? Or this morning, you're coming for a message and you're going to listen for a moment. What, what are you hoping to take away from that? What do, you, what do you want to hear this book say? Now, quite honestly, you know this. You don't always get to hear what you want to hear, do you? And quite honestly, when I read this to you, uh, there's a part of me that's not like, Ooh, I'm so glad the Bible says that right here. But I don't get to choose what the Bible says. And it's, it's strategically revealed by God. So it's about to say what it's about to say. But here, here's a bigger issue for us because we're an audience approaching this book with an agenda. We want it to say something, don't we? We want it to cover certain issues in life. We want it to make us feel a certain way as we leave from here today. But the Bible has an agenda as well. And so when we come to it, we we need to answer to its agenda. And I actually came across a very interesting article this week. I encourage you to read it. If you go on John Piper's Desiring God website, John Piper wrote an article about the Charlottesville situation, the Confederate monuments and what's taking place in that whole arena. Very, very well thought out perspective that I think Christians need to read and ponder carefully. But it's not so much where he went with that topic is how he introduced the conversation. And I think anybody reading their Bible and seeking to listen to God needs to have this in place in their hearts. He says this, he says, I'm not a politician or a political activist. I'm a pastor emeritus who spends much of his time Trying to answer hard questions about what the Bible means and how to apply it to our lives. So after the deadly conflict in Charlottesville, Virginia on August 11 through 12, I posed myself a lot of questions. Sometimes the Bible gives direct answers to our questions like the question, how should we speak to each other? Well the answer is let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. But that's not mainly what the Bible does. Mainly it puts us on a path of transformation. It points us to Jesus Christ, right? When you're reading the Bible it would be always appropriate in any section, any passages you're reading to be asking, how is this pointing to Jesus Christ? That's the agenda of this book. It points us to Jesus Christ and the good news that he came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross to bear the sins of all who believe in him. He absorbed the righteous anger of God. Did you you know the Bible wants you to see that when you read it? Did you know that's an agenda? That's like a chapter heading. Before you set out into this pathway of reading the Bible, the Bible's kind of wanting to tell you, hey, look for certain things along the way. Notice this and notice this and notice this. It wants you to notice that line. That God has absorbed the righteous anger of God. He wants you to look in the Bible and find out, really, that exists here? That's a real player? Yes, it is. And now, anyone from any race, tribe, people, class, or nation who believes in him has forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to fight our own sins like pride and selfishness and fear and greed and lust and racism. So the message of the Bible is not Mainly a social program of personal or national improvements. It's not what the Bible mainly is. It is mainly a message for how to be reconciled to God. And how to become a kind of exile and sojourner in, the, in this world till Jesus comes to make all things new. Did you read the Bible with this sense that this book is primarily, mainly about how to be reconciled to God? Reconciled? Really? I, did, I had, and there was, there was a significant portion of my life where I had no idea God and I weren't on good terms. So, the idea that I needed to be reconciled to God wouldn't mean that there is some broken dimension of my relationship with Him. There's some offense between us. But you know, my blurry, soupy version of God that I had going in my head was that God was pretty much going to work it out. Whatever there was going wrong, He'd get over it somehow because, you know, He's super tolerant, so patient and he just brush something aside. He'd just make it work somehow. I mean, somehow it would just work. So the idea that you'd be standing in front of me and saying, did you know this book primarily is about first telling you that you're not right with God? I, no. That was a foreign thought to me. But when you read the passage today that we're going to read, you're going to find out. I can see why it's not a foreign thought to the Bible. Now listen. Again, why are you, why are you reading this book again? What? What do you want to get from it? Countless American Christians, and that's the context of our lives, are, are reading this book because we just want a little help along the way in life's journey. We want a little inspirational moment. We'd like some tips on how to do life better, how to do marriage better, how to do parenting better, how to, how to, how to make more money, how to be whatever. In life, how to fulfill a dream that we've always had. And, and maybe there's some spiritual secrets in this book that'll help me get there. You know, some, some faith nuance. And if you just believe the right thing, say the right thing, pray the right way, it's like this unlocks something and then life can become something different than it ever was. Right? That's why we're coming to the Bible. But mainly, the Bible is about reconciling man to God. Don't run past that point too quickly. Because it will make you cheapen everything you see in the Bible and turn it into, well, how is this a tip for tomorrow? How will this make Monday more meaningful? How can I get my dream? I've always wanted my dream. God wants me to have my dream too. That's what we're being led to believe the Bible's mainly about. And then you come to Exodus chapter 32, which I hope you're there already. All right, so the first six verses we looked at last week introduced us to the golden calf story, foot of Mount Sinai, there's a delay. Moses takes a little bit too long. And the people uh, of God at the foot of Mount Sinai decide, hey, we need a God to go before us. To, to be our God in the midst of, you know, who knows what's happened to this Moses? Who knows what the future of the God that he's connected with? We need a God. And even if we welcome that God, we're going to associate him now with Egyptian gods and our understanding of another foreign God. So they've, they've made an idol at the foot of Mount Sinai. And now we're going to look at God's response To their idolatry. And Moses response. To their idolatry. In order to learn something very important. About the message of the Bible. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses. Go down. For your people. Whom you brought up. Out of the land of Egypt. Have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. Out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves. A golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them In order that I may make a great nation of you. Skip down in verse 26. Here's further. I just want you to see God's response further. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said. Who is on the Lord's side? This is after Moses has come back down the mountain now. So he's up on the mountain. That first scene takes place. He's back down at the foot of the mountain. He's calling the people to declare themselves. Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. I skip over to verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. The one that Aaron made. Well, Father, thank you for words that are inspired. Words from you. Words preserved intentionally. this This is not an accidental press release about you. This is an intentional awareness. You bring our attention to be aware of who you are and what you are like. Help us now. To receive from your word in Jesus name. Amen. Let me just highlight a few of these responses from God. Right, First, God responds to the idolatry of man by distancing himself. Right? The moment this happens, the first thing God has to say to Moses is, Hey, your people. I thought these were God's people. You know those people you brought with you, Moses? They're yours. So there's a little bit of a distance feeling here that God installs. And and God's going to elaborate on this more. This is not just a moment in chapter 33, the first couple of verses there. in Verse 2, God says, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. But man chooses idolatry over choosing God. God responds. God notices. And God highlights something here. That if you read it carefully, it's a very humbling awareness to have. God highlights his incompatibility with us. You can go up into the land, but it's, you know, me being among you, it's not going to work. Because of what you're like and because of what I'm like. You're stiff-necked. That word is a, it's a complicated word, but it means you're you're difficult. You're just hard to be around. Now, we're not hard to be around with each other because we're all like each other. We're all kind of got the same tendencies, the same resume. But do you understand God is not like us? The very nature of God. When you and I come in contact with with sin today. Half the time it's not even being labeled sin anymore. Half the time we've kind of become used to it. We just see it. Nothing shocks us anymore. Boy the generation coming after my generation. Nothing shocks you. Little shocks my generation. But nothing shocks you anymore. And yet God is not like us. When God looks on sin... Sin registers with him, right? And he says, if if I hung out with you guys, if if I go with you here, um, I'd consume you. Because of the nature of what God is. He's a consuming fire. And and sort of we become this flammable material. So if you put stiff-necked people in the presence of a consuming fire, you're going to have a blaze on your hands. And so almost for your own good, God says, you you don't want me hanging out among you. Because I'd consume you. Which should be raising questions for you right now. But God does end up hanging out among them. Right, We'll come back to that. Probably not this week, but next week. You remember the Bible says this. In Isaiah chapter 59, God pronounces. That his hand is not so short that it cannot save. However, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and he does not hear you right this is the kind of stuff that would have freaked me out when my casual never read the bible season of my life because I I thought as human beings we sort of always had God on retainer you know that somehow he was owing to us because he's God and 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 we're his children right because I thought everybody was God's child and so being as we're God's children, he's, he's got to come when I call, you know, it really doesn't matter what the quality of my life, he's just owing me something. So I just call, he comes. And then you read in the Bible, it's like, no, no, he doesn't even listen. What? Right. This is the kind of stuff that freaks out, right? But this is in the Bible. And so do I read the Bible because I want it to tell me what it has to say? Or do I shop in the Bible for things that I'd like to hear? And this is what the Bible says. Look what God does next here. God responds by labeling their behavior. They've done something. I don't care what you want to call it or what they wanted to call it. They call it innocent, an accident. We didn't mean it. God uses labels like they have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside. They have worshipped and sacrificed to idols. They didn't just have this thing in a backpack by accident. You have worshipped it. And you have sacrificed to it. And they are stiff-necked. And through Moses he says, you have sinned a great sin. You know, listen, you and I live in an age that, that beginning in the 80s, certain presentations, certain words began to be off off the table, out of bounds, inappropriate. You don't say things like this. You, you don't say negative things. We just like positive things. And certainly if God is a good God, he's always positive, right? He's always saying things that are positive. And so positive began to be the thing through which we began to filter ideas. That Will I let any bad ideas in? Well, you must stop hearing the word bad. As a matter of fact, if you ever said that child is bad, boy, flags on the play, you know, boy, you... you those children are bad. Oh no, you can't. You don't call children bad. Like that's wrong to call children bad. Well, have yeah, your kids are bad, they're bad. But you know, but you know, self-esteem movement became God, and you damage people by telling them that they're bad. Well, somebody needs to tell God this stuff. He called them corrupt, stiff-necked, difficult. You're hard to be around. That's, he labeled them that. But kind of we don't we don't want to hear that. We have all kinds of new terms that we use. You can be involved in a sinful way with a member of the opposite sex or a member of the same sex. And that's an alternative lifestyle. Have you ever read the Bible and found the word alternative lifestyle in it? Yeah, I mean, again, you might be really shocked that God uses a different set of labels. You know, if you. Show up with the person that you're living with who's not your spouse. The Bible calls that things like fornication and adultery. Uh, We call it significant other. Right? Do you understand? We've got a new set of labels. God uses labels. Listen, if you jettison God's labels, here's what you can't do. You can't do step number one to reconciling with God, which is confess your sins. I mean, this is as basic as Christianity gets. When God comes on the scene of the world, He invites them to recognize you are in a bad place. Confession of sin is simply agreeing with God about that, it's it's simply calling things what God calls them. So we don't get to reinvent some other labels. If God is going to be at work in your life, please rescue yourself from this word game world that you live in. Who calls things differently than what God calls them. Because if you call it something different, you'll do something different with it. If it is called something by God, then you'll know what to do with it. But if you change the label on it and call it something else, you won't know what to do with it. And so this is, this is God responding. Third, God responds with wrath. Right? Verse 10. Let me alone, Moses. Leave me alone. That my wrath may burn hot against them. Wrath. Really? That's a word we don't use. So it's, it's, it's good for us to have a word that we don't use. Because it lets it have its own definition. And it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's, it's strangely a word that comes from the Hebrew word for nostril. So what is this? What, what on earth does this mean? You ever have your dad look at you like that? I think that's what it means. <laughs> it is this intensity of anger, emotion being expressed, right? Wayne Grudem says, it may surprise us To find how frequently the Bible talks about the wrath of God. Yet if God loves all that is right and good. And he's not like us. He really, really loves that. And all that conforms to his moral character. Then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. If he really loves that. God's wrath... Directed against sin is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. God's wrath may be defined as follows. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. I'm not making this stuff up, right? I'm just reading Exodus chapter 32 with you. And God could have chosen to leave this out if he thought it a little too unpleasant for public consumption. But instead, he says, inspires this word and make sure you include the moment where I told Moses to get out of my way. That my wrath might be spilled out on these people and I'll start again with you. You make sure and record that. You understand that's why you have this. There is, and, and, and you and I try and make sense of that. I get that. And I've never been able to illustrate this in a, in, the, in, a, in a way that fully explains the full orb character of God. But when I see this response of God's wrath, it, it reminds me of, of sort of like the immune system in our body. When something foreign invades your body, your body reacts to it. it, it immediately, it sends this defense mechanism comes and it attacks that thing that has entered your body. That's the reaction, that's the natural disposition of your body. Your body is, by nature, programmed to come against the invader and to attack that invader. And I almost think, in the character of God, that's how the wrath of God is towards sin. This is is not like God sitting back and wondering, should I respond to this? Uh, You know, I'm in a good mood today, I don't think so. I think the righteousness of God, the very nature of God being perfectly good and right and holy and untouched by any form of impurity at all, means that when sin comes near to God, the immune system, if you will, of God responds to that with wrath. Now you can like that or not, I'm just, this, this is what a disservice gets done when you and I decide to only like what we like about God. And in the modern age, you know, I, I'm taking a lot of time on this today because you and I live in a day where this is extremely unpopular. And weird. And I would never believe in a God like that. I don't want to insult anybody. I mean, if those words have come out of your mouth, it it doesn't matter what you choose to believe about God. One bit. God is who God is. You don't get to create him. You just get to discover him. So before our value system gets upside down and we say, well, I refuse to discover a God who's like that, you know, it it doesn't matter. God is who God is. The great day of reckoning where all of humanity stands before this God is is not going to be a moment that we get to invent him. We just get to fully discover him. And this is his word. And he wrote this episode down about himself. Now, there's some awful, wonderful good news in this passage as well, which I am going to get to in just a second. But I can't get past this reality. This little story puts us in touch with some really uncomfortable stuff, right? Here, man is going to do the wrong thing, and we can all identify with that. We're a room full of guys and girls who have done plenty of wrong things. And God's going to respond with anger and withdrawal and the threat of judgment. I don't don't particularly care for that. And man is going to get visited with consequences. There are going to be consequences for the actions that they take at Mount Sinai. Some by sword, some by plague. And then God references, I'm not going with you. There's consequences here. And you know what? None of us like that. It is so uncomfortable for us to have the idea that I did something that messed up my future. That change what's about to take place in my life. None of us like that. But I don't get to erase the parts of the Bible where there are consequences to human actions. That will drive me to a redeemer. Right? You know what a redeemer does, right? He steps into those consequences and brings new life. And if there are no consequences in life, then you don't appreciate a redeemer. See, this is why no one... Can celebrate the gospel correctly. If you undo these awkward points. This is an awkward point. Isn't it? There are consequences. For human decisions. All right, you're going to get about a year out here. From this scene at Mount Sinai. Numbers chapter 14. Maybe about a year. Not much more. And this Stiff-necked people have proven yet again how stiff-necked they are. And they will not believe God. And God sends spies into the land to say, hey, you know the land I promised you? Bring back some fruit from that. It's awesome. Well, the spies come back. You remember the story? The spies come back. Two of them say, it is awesome. Look, it's flowing with milk and honey. Ten of them come back and say, "Ain't no way. This ain't going to work. I don't care what God promised. There's giants in the land and we're all going to die there. Alright, so they have finally gotten to the place where they have doubted God, disobeyed God, built idols, ignored God, stayed in their own idolatry and unbelief. And at that moment, there are consequences. And God steps in and says, this generation will not enter into my promised land. Everybody 20 years old and up, you're going to die in the wilderness You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until you're all dead. And then the generation after you will go in. Those are consequences. The people who go off into exile in the giant chapter of the Bible where God's people go into exile at the end of the Old Testament, those are consequences. Sometimes we don't let the story of humanity's condition be clear enough to us so that when God steps in and does what he does, we don't value it. We don't see it. If you're here today and you've made ungodly decisions in your life, there are consequences for it. Oh, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? Hey, listen, I don't escape the uncomfortable. I just get to tell you about it. Like, you know, I'm preaching it to you, but I have to live in that too because I've made Decisions that have consequences to them. As challenging as that is, it is for real. But if you don't see that kind of God in the scriptures, you won't need this particular kind of Jesus when he comes. The kind who stands as a divine human shield to absorb the wrath of God rather than let it be poured out on man. You won't look for a savior. You'll look for an inspiring moral example. Do you understand why most people miss who Jesus is? Because whatever he came to fix isn't bad enough for them. He wasn't necessary. All he needed to do And if this is who Jesus is to you, you don't see human need correctly. All Jesus needed to do was show up and live a really amazing life, inspire some people, love the underdog, get around people nobody else would get around, and teach messages on how you and I can do stuff like he he did. And people will write books, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I know that's a popular saying. What would Jesus do is a question so far secondary to what did Jesus do? Jesus came to do something that is informed by this passage in Exodus chapter 32. And if I don't see that, I don't need a savior. I just need a good moral teacher. Which is why Islam... Is confused about Jesus Christ. Islam accepts a good moral teacher. It does not understand the savior. Because it doesn't have the same problem. The Bible describes us as having. Muhammad overlooked the problem here. One of the craziest problems with Islam. Is that it's God is too small. And as hard as that religion sounds, it's not hard enough. Because it invites you to try and fix your problem between you and Allah. And if you can fix it, you ain't got much of a problem then, do you? What if you can't fix it? What if the real need of man is way in over your head and there's nothing you can do to fix it? Well, how would you even know that? Chapters like this, where God shows up and freaks you out. You need these chapters in the Bible. They'll make you see Jesus correctly. But you need Moses' response as well. I mean, look at Moses' response just for a second. Because Moses' response is going to help us see God more correctly as well. Right? Moses' response, look in verse 11. Moses responded like the wrath of God was real. God said, get out of my way. The wrath of God is real. Verse 11. But Moses implored The Lord His God. It says, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Lord, why are you going to do this? Why get out of the way, Lord? Why are you going to let your wrath be poured out out on your people? You know what Moses doesn't do? He doesn't treat the wrath of God like, oh, that's not real. That's not going to happen. That's not the God I know. You know, the God I know would never do something like that. Actually, Moses thinks he will. You see that in this passage? You and I were hanging out with Moses. And we introduced him to a modern American God. Who never did anything except make everybody's dream come true. He would scratch his head and say, oh, that's not my God. Because he thought the wrath of God was a real thing. Moses responded with an interesting passion and sober disappointment. Look down in verse 15. Moses turned, this is after God has spoken with him. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, This is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of shouting or cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Does it strike you? This strikes me. I think this man's out of control. And here's why. Not because he responded that way to the people in their situation. He took something God had written on and threw it on the ground. Does that strike you? I'm thinking everything he's gotten around with God has been scary to touch. Uh, freak you out. And he's gotten something no one else has ever had before. Hand written notes from God. And he walks into the setting where he sees these people. But this gives away something about what's in this man's heart. What's in his heart is a loyalty to God that far transcends anything else in this world. These people who are his people, who he is part of them and they are part of him. When he sees the idolatry break out in their lives something boils over and spills over he is not indifferent he's not unaffected he is kind of like god god is hot in this moment moses is hot in this moment and throws these sacred tablets to the ground you know part of me wants to say today man where where's the loyalty to god In our day, we're we're so much wanting to be on man's side and identify with man and how God ought to do toward man. Where where's the loyalty to God that says? But what about what God is worth? What about what He deserves? That's in Moses, and I'm I'm affected by it. But here's an interesting thing that Moses does. Go back to verse eleven. Moses responds with hope that is based in the full character of God. You have stood before God, Moses. And Moses has said, Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to waste all these people and start over again with you. All right, that's the decree of God in this moment. That's what I'm going to do, God says to Moses. Moses has no idea to do anything else, but look what he does. And look what it reveals about what he knows about God in this moment. Verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, wh- why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with your great power and with a mighty hand? Right? Moses is going to turn to God and he's going to make an appeal to God. He's going to make an argument to God why not to exercise his wrath by asking God to exercise other things about God. And make sure you catch that. Because Moses is fully seeing God in this moment. And when you and I stare at the wrath of God and that's all you see, that's a problem. But when you stare at the love of God or the grace of God and that's all you see, that's a problem too. What makes Moses posture as an intercessor is that he he knows a lot about this God. And he knows that wrath business is serious. Enough so for him to implore God on behalf of these people. But Moses is going to break out what I I call, he's going to make an argument before God. If you're an intercessor, you should read a little bit. Maybe Bill needs to teach a class on this. You know, how to create a legal brief when you go before God. Charles Spurgeon has an article, I may pick it up next week as I look at some more of Moses' uh, intercession. Charles Spurgeon has a great article called, Filling Your Mouths with Arguments. You can find that online, go read it. It's one of the best articles on prayer you'll ever read. Filling Your Mouths with Arguments. Well, that's what Moses does right here. He's aware that the wrath of God is going to compel God to take these very actions, but he knows these things about God. A.W. Pink says this, Let us notice now the various grounds upon which Moses pleaded before the Lord his God. They are three in number. He appealed to the grace of God, the glory of God, and the faithfulness of God. All right, look in verse 11. God says, I am going to pour my wrath out. Moses says, but God, I know you to be a gracious God. God. God, why why let wrath be the response in this moment for these people that you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? God, do do you remember the basis for all that taking place? God, do you remember you chose this nation out of grace? They didn't perform and get your affection in the beginning and they're not doing well now either. But from the beginning, the reason why you were in their lives and rescuing them out of Egypt was because of the grace that was in you to rescue them and you did all these mighty signs to bring them to yourself the argument from Moses is God I know you're a wrathful God but I also know you're a God of grace and I appeal to your grace in this moment be gracious not wrathful to these people verse 12 he appeals to the glory of God he says why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. God, I know you to be a glorious God, a God of fame, a God whose glory is to fill the entire earth, that people would look at you and would understand your beauty and wonder. God, the Egyptians, this is what they're going to do with that. They're going to look at this glorious God and say He brought them out into the wilderness just to kill them. God, that's not worthy of your name. He argues with God. God, for the sake of your own fame and name, don't, don't kill them. Verse thirteen, and then he argues another argument. This is a, this is the, Moses was part attorney. I promise you. He says, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you you swore. By your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. God, you, you promised something. And I, I know you're a God of wrath, but I also know you're a God who is faithful. And if you promise something, you will do it. And he appeals to God on the basis of what he knows about God in this moment. Do you you see that all that is available to us to know in this passage? God is not quiet about the fact that there is this wrath dimension. That's not the only thing God talks about here. Moses brings an awareness. He responds to the idolatry of the people and the response of God by appealing to what he knows is in God in addition to wrath. Not because there wasn't any wrath there. Notice this. And again, you know, I'm, you know, I'm taking time to point some of these things out because our culture is so far away from this. Our culture gets praying for the need of humanity, and there's nothing wrong with that. Our culture doesn't get praying for the purpose of God, it doesn't get that. Notice what Moses is interceding for them about it's not a social cause. He's not praying that they might get an upgrade. He's not praying that they, the, the poor among them would be educated and clothed. This, this is not what he's asking for. Do you know what he's asking for right here? His intercession is about saving these people from God. Does that freak you out? God, it is, it's your wrath they need to be spared of. They've come to the base of this mountain and, and the need above every need in their life is what you're going to do in response to their idolatry, God. That's the need above any need in their life. God, somehow solve the problem of your judgment being visited on their lives. That's what Moses intercedes about. And that's why this book mainly is about being reconciled to God. The greatest need of these people at Mount Sinai was their relationship to God, which was under fire at this moment. Because of God's response to their idolatry. This last thought here. Moses responds with intercession. This is just a a powerful lesson in a man who led and led incredibly well. And any of us who are leading families and people, church, would do well to pay careful attention to Moses' response here. Charles Spurgeon. Hey, Phil, here's a Charles Spurgeon quote. Am I okay for a while now? Quit heckling me. Charles Spurgeon says, It is noteworthy that Moses did not lose himself in this moment of trial. We read at once, and Moses besought Jehovah his God. He was undoubtedly a man of prayer, but he must have been continually in the spirit of prayer or else I could conceive of him at that moment falling on his face, lying there in silent horror. I could imagine him flying down the mountain in a passion and haste to see what had been done. But it is delightful to find that he did neither of these two things, rather he began To pray. And he embodies something about us. And about God's people that have been made possible through Jesus Christ. That we live at the top of the mountain with God. Not at the bottom where people are prohibited from coming up. Moses had Access to the presence of God. So when trouble broke out in the people's lives, his duty was to pray and seek God for his intervention. A.W. Pink says Moses did not fail his people in this hour of their urgent need. Most blessed is it to behold how he conducted himself on this occasion. God said to him, Let me alone. That my wrath may wax hot against them. And I will make of thee a great nation. But Moses uses his place of nearness to God. Not on his own behalf. But for the good of the people. Listen. There, there's, there's all kinds of brokenness and issues in people's lives. That are around us. And you and I have access to God, intercession should be a feature component of who we are as people. And in fact, Evan mentioned that we're going to have some time to pray for the folks in Houston uh, at the close of the service. I'm going to actually dismiss the service, and then all who would like to stay and pray are going to be asked to just stay with us and let's intercede for the needs that are there in Houston. How many guys have ever had water in your home? All right. See you after service. You know what it's like, right? I mean, it is. It's, it's a messy need, isn't it? Here, I, can't, I can't pass up these two tips here. Moses' lessons in this moment to any of us who have people that we're responsible for in our lives. First, Moses' leadership is not clouded by his own ambitions. Boy, I, I wish I had time just to sit in that. But you do, you do hear the offer on the table here, don't you? Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. Remember that famous guy, Abraham, Moses? You get to be him. Everybody who's descended will now come from Moses. Not Abraham, but you will be. Can you imagine if he had an ounce of ambition in you in this moment? you couple that with the fact that I'm not sure in the natural Moses liked these people anyway. I'm serious. They ha- it hasn't exactly been a party through the wilderness. And you know we started this whole story off. I mean you got to listen to this. this is, Moses has got to hear this stuff in Exodus 32 verse 1. They tell Aaron up, make for us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... <laughs> The man who brought us up, who the heck knows where he is. The, and the language picks up, even the English language picks it up. The Hebrew picks it up as well. As for this Moses, that dude. This is the attitude of these people. They, they don't commend themselves to Moses. This is not the end of his battling with them either. At some point before they get kicked out of going in the promised land, they're going to rise up against him. They're going to say, who the heck made you in charge? And Korah is going to lead a rebellion against him. This is going on over and over and over again. And God labels them a stiff-necked, difficult bunch of people. Well, (laughs) Moses is having to deal with these people every day. And God comes along and says, I've got a deal for you, Moses. Get out of my way. Let me be done with all these people. And I will start over again with you. Now, if you were surrounded by pain-in-the-butt people, what would you be thinking? I mean, I I don't know. My prayer would have sounded a little bit different here. Well, you know, Lord, I hate to see that happen. But if you think that's best, I am your servant. uh, Waste away. Can you toast that one first? Uh, But this is what made Moses a man who had an incredible resume. He was the meekest man on the earth. And this is a word for all of us who have to yoke our lives to other people in some fashion. One of the greatest problems of us leading people and relating to them the way they need to be related to. Rather than the way we want to relate to them. Has to do with our own ambitions. Ambitions. What do I want in this relationship that you aren't giving me? What do I want in this circumstance that you are a part of? See, that, that ambition, if that sits in me and I got an agenda and I'm going to work that thing and make it happen, I'm, I'm not sure I'm in this category. But see, Moses is able to pray this selfless prayer. This is a scary thing. He's standing before God and saying, no, God, I will not step aside. Which is reminiscent of what someone else is about to do for us. What is this this story ultimately about? Well, look in verse 14. Because of all the stuff that we've just treaded through and how difficult it could be to hear it. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I'm not going to take the time to theologically explain that, but you ought to have some questions about what does it mean for God to relent? It's a good study, not for this morning though. But here's the storyline. You have a God who has a certain character to him and a people who have a certain stiff-necked, difficult character to them. And they do what's in their nature and God responds with what's in his nature. And... One is going to be consumed by the other. Until a mediator stands in between those who are about to be consumed and the one who's going to do the consuming and says, no, stop, wait. And he intercedes on their behalf. And God relents and doesn't give the people what they deserve. Now, if you understand that This is not a collection of fables and fairy tales. It is trying to tell the story about how to be reconciled to God. That's what this book is trying to do. Because if we fast forward from Moses, there's one coming after him. Who Moses is just an illustration of. Moses is in the Bible to illustrate, to help us see more clearly Jesus Christ. Because he is going to stand one day between guilty humanity and a righteous God the Father and he's going to say no don't give them what they deserve but the question is how is it that God's not going to give them what they deserve does he just reach over and throw a switch in his back and say well I guess I'll have to turn off that wrath piece in me I am now the God formerly known as wrathful. And from this moment on, I will have thrown the switch and I will no longer be a wrathful God. Is that what you think the Bible teaches? you understand that those people at the foot of this mountain, God is able to relent, not because their guilt is going to be erased or ignored, but because God is going to pick it up and stick it in a holding tank. And he's going to do something with it in the future. And it's going to travel through time. And the next set of people, and the next dumb thing that they do, and the next piece, and the next waywardness, and the next idolatry, God is going to collect all of those things. And he's going to have this cup of the wrath of God. And when Jesus walks into Gethsemane and he turns to the Father and he begins to pray that you might spare this cup from me. What cup was he talking about? That's the cup he was talking about. The wrath of God that had been stored for the ages of every human being was about to be visited on the Son of God for all who would turn to him in faith. That's what Jesus confronts. That's why this illustration of Moses is just an illustration. What this story is ultimately about is about what Jesus Christ is going to do for us as the mediator. Who is going to spare us from the wrath of a God who does respond in wrath. It, it is a sad travesty. I know, I know I come off sounding like, oh man, dude, that's so heavy and you're so harsh. And if, listen, if anything I've said isn't the God of the Bible, then you explain to me Jesus Christ then. And what you'll end up explaining to me is not a savior. You'll explain him to me like all the people who don't get him explain him. He was a good moral teacher. He taught us to love one another and he inspired us to all live a better life. No, he came into this world for one reason primarily, to drink that cup dry. Because if there's a drop left and it spills on you and I, we're done. Because that's what God is like. But God is more than that, isn't he? God is incredibly faithful to his promises, so much so that he wouldn't spare his own son. He would send his son. Remember, the father sends the son to drink that cup. So he is wrathful, but he is gracious as well. And he is faithful to his promises. And he will make this thing work. The covenant he made in the scriptures, it's God who makes it work. In the midst of people who continue to be idolatrous. So when you read this story, Eric, you can come back up. When you read this story, or do you read this story? When you come to the Bible and you're shopping for something that's going to do something for you, you go to passages like this, just kind of stick to the Psalms, grab me a proverb, Find me one of those nice passages where Jesus treated somebody who was nasty. He treated him nice, though. Let me go there. Listen, this is one of the benefits, you know. As a church, we we preach through sections of the Bible, All right? So when you do that and you get to Exodus chapter thirty-two, I don't get to skip it. I don't get to say, you know what? I know this is like weird for people today, and we don't want to go there. Introduce them to a God who's got such bad press. Can we just keep him in the closet? Let's just talk about how God really loves you. He's going to fix everything that's bad. And in the end, you're going to skip along and dance and sing a new song. It's going to be great. All right, now all that's true. It's just not the only thing that's true. And I read these passages and I, and I look forward from Exodus 32 to the day when the relenting of God for his wrath got stored somewhere and then it got taken away by what Jesus Christ did that's why Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable in the human race because he's going to do something for us that no one else could ever do that's ultimately what this story is about let's stand up together your word this morning under the question of of what, what do we want to see today as we read it why do I come to the Bible what do I want it to tell me or maybe this wasn't on many of our list Lord, when I read this story and I see who you are, I see a man like Moses who had been with you and spent time with you. I see more of you. And Lord, that's what you'd want me to see. You'd want me to see more of you. Because in seeing more of you, Lord, I come to understand more. I understand more about my life and my need. I understand more about you. I understand more of your son. Why he came. What he accomplished. I have a new definition for faithfulness. I always thought you were faithful, God. But when I see your son in the garden, pondering the cup he's about to drink on my behalf. Insisting that the promises that you made to Abraham become mine. Mine. Me, the idolater that I have been. shallow empty glances at you i want deep penetrating awareness and this story some 1400 plus years before jesus came helps me see your son and what you did through him lord this morning help us lord in this room we're gathered together and a lot of things in our lives are saying this needs to be fixed. And that's my biggest problem there. And that person over there is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Until I read this and I realize, Lord, the greatest need in my life is to be reconciled to you, to be restored to the God who gives life, who is also righteous and unimaginable and hard to approach. And yet here I am, What a story. And Lord, it can be any of our story. If you're here this morning and you didn't know when you came in this morning that the greatest thing the Bible is about is about restoring you to God. God cares about your brokenness and he cares about your Bodily afflictions and the struggles that you're having and the unhappiness you're experiencing. But life doesn't really begin until you are restored to God, and that just can't happen apart from Jesus Christ doing it for you. This morning, God would call on you to respond to Him. Respond to Him. He has done something in your place you can respond to him you can turn to him this morning and put your faith in Jesus Christ the savior not not just a good teacher but the savior the one who can bring you back to God and forgive all of your sins the one who will drink the cup of your wrath so that you never ever ever would know anything about what it tastes like and you come to him simply by faith Agreeing with him. Confessing. Saying Lord I need you. I have sinned. I am an idolater. But I turn to you this morning God. For you to forgive me and restore me. Bring me back to you. The creator. Lord make my life to be about you. And for you. I want to live every day from this moment forward. For you God. The one who made me. Make my life new. I give it to you. In Jesus' name.
1: The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend
2: the agonies of
1: Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crossed Your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin, have been brought near your enemy you've made your friend bring out the riches of your glory Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank. My sin, Jesus, th- thank you, Jesus. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin, But Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy. Now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me, giving me mercy. Thank you, Jesus.
2: Lord, help us to have this full, fully defined idea and awareness and knowledge of you. Lord, that doesn't only just think of you as loving, that doesn't only just cower away from you in fear of your wrath, Lord, but that worships you for all that you are, that respects you, that praises you, that obeys you. Lord, and help us personally, God, to to be grateful for this grace that we've been given. This wrath that has not, not been, uh, not been taken away from us, but that's been received for us by Jesus, Lord. He took that wrath in our place. Lord, give us a growing awareness and appreciation and indebtedness to Your grace through Your Son, Jesus. We love You, God. And we live for You, Lord. So help us to do that this week. We pray in Your name. Amen. Amen. If you want to join us to pray, go ahead and stay up here in the front. We'll join in, in prayer here in a second. In about two minutes.